Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a familiar name and voice back to the program. David McGarry joins us. He is a Young Voices contributor. And David, for the sake of folks who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I am a contributor to Young Voices, and I am also a policy analyst with the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Um, I write mostly about tech issues with trade issues and energy issues thrown in there and just a sprinkling of constitutional law as I can. Yeah, I'm looking at an article you wrote for RealClearMarkets.com about how Amazon positions its independent sellers to prosper. And it got me thinking about uh, just how often something about, you know, a truck pulls up to the house and there's an Amazon delivery. It really has changed the way that uh, that we do our shopping, hasn't it? Well, certainly. And everybody knows how Amazon has revolutionized the shopping experience for the consumer. And we have fairly good polling that shows that consumers really love Amazon. They love Amazon Prime. They enjoy the convenience. They enjoy the low prices um, and all of the other good things that come along with it. But what people don't think about as much um, is what Amazon has done for brands, for for manufacturers, for for people who are entering retail. Um, and unfortunately, the people who are thinking about those questions oftentimes come to the conclusion that Amazon is a very anti-competitive um, marketplace and that it needs some sort of antitrust scrutiny, which is really what started the thought process that led to this article. So I went to uh, talk to small business people who sell on Amazon and they told me a very different story and they told me a very interesting story. Um, and what I got from them was that we've all been looking at this wrong. We, we, we have the, the paradigm completely backwards. And what Amazon has done is it, it has opened up um, avenues into the retail space for small business people, even those who are starting something in their living room or in their kitchen, they can compete with the big brands on day one on Amazon's marketplace. It provides extensive tools for sellers to um, become and remain competitive again with massive um, name brands. And it's really stripped away all of the barriers that would have prevented these people from flourishing and from growing their own businesses um, and growing their own brands in the traditional retail stores such as uh, Walmart or Target or whatnot. So why, pray tell then, does somebody feel like, well, we better get government involved and fix this with some antitrust, uh, you know, action? Um, who's, who is uh, taking offense to how this is working? There is a movement. Um, uh, there's a progressive movement that's sometimes called hipster antitrust or neo-Brandeisianism. And basically, the central, the central tenet of this movement is that bigness is bad. Big companies are bad. Um, and, of course, I think is, is anybody who likes free markets knows big companies have their own interests and those interests don't always align with the consumer and, or, and those interests aren't always um, uh, uh, for the, to the benefit of competition. But what the neo Brandeisians say is that um, we should just assume that anyone who has reached a certain level um, that's often a sort of a very subjectively set mark of um, success or of market consolidation, we should just knock them off with antitrust enforcement. That either means we should break up the companies, we should prevent any kind of merger, mergers or acquisitions that they would attempt, um, or we should just, um, as in, is, is the case with the Federal Trade Commission's current suit against Amazon, um, that what the FCC is trying to do is essentially go in and completely remake the way that Amazon does business in a way that's going to really harm consumers. But again, for the FTC, that could, those consumer harms are secondary concerns because there's some larger metaphysical um, uh, 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 big is bad mentality and um, they are trying to go after Amazon just for the crime of its own success. Wow. 
And yet it's it seems to be working well. Talk to me about how um, these third-party sellers actually have fewer restrictions than if they were trying to go through, say, for instance, a retail outlet to, to, to sell their stuff. Right. So this is this is actually really, really important. Um, a lot of folks don't think about, uh, say, Target or, or say, um, say Walmart as a quote-unquote anti-competitive um, retailer. Because no one thinks like that. Everyone understands that there's a finite amount of shelf space. You have to pay sometimes exorbitant fees to get your products onto those shelves and in um, good, it's called, they're called slotting fees to get your products in good places um, and in prominent places where customers will see them. And there's a huge amount of money and a huge amount of time that is um, that is invested in this. And this really favors the big brands who have the extra resources to throw um, to throw money for slotting fees, to throw manpower at navigating these complex um, these complex contractual agreements, um, and that really ices out the small guy. That, that as we know, a complexity is a subsidy for those who have the excess resources to deal with it. Right? This is basic economics. Um, and what Amazon has done is it has largely axed all of those restrictions. Of course, there's still things there's still things you have to do. There are still hoops you have to jump through. There are paths you have to walk as a seller to be successful. But at the same time, there are these barriers that people are complaining about and myopically focusing on on, um, on Amazon are so much lower, um, drastically lower um, than anything that you'll find in the traditional retail market. Wow. I mean, I look, I guess now that I think about it, I probably have known a lot of people who have been selling stuff, you know, on Amazon Marketplace for, for quite some time. But uh, I, I'll admit, I've bought into some of the news store. Well, you know, Amazon, they don't pay their employees well and they, they're monopolizing. But uh, you actually have talked to the small business owners who've been utilizing it. And it sounds like it really works quite well for them. It really does. Um, and this is something that is unendingly frustrating to me because it's it's not it's not fun or sexy to, to come out as a policy analyst and say no actually the you know the the corporation that maybe does overwork its employees or the or um or maybe has done this or that individual bad thing it's not it's not it's not a uh it's not a way to make friends to go out and say oh I, this, these people should not be, should not be regulated, right? The government should leave them alone and completely leaving aside the first principle side of things um, and, and the property rights side of things. Um, it's just really important to, to just take a breath, take a second look and actually understand the freedom and the competition that Amazon has promoted with what they offer. And you know, it's not perfect. Are there things that they should change? Yes. And, and that's something else that gets overlooked in all, almost all conversations criticizing me tech is that these companies are actually evolving. And the part of the reason why your Amazons and your Googles are still successful is because they have been pouring massive amounts of money to R and D. They have spent an incredible amount of time um, improving their product consistently and meaningfully changing and transforming their business models so that they can keep up. And the ones that have failed to do that are no longer names that we recognize. Talk to me about feedback. How does customer feedback um, help those uh those who, for instance, market things on Amazon uh, to be better businesses? And, and how would that differ from, you know, simply buying it from a retail store? Right. So one of Amazon's biggest strengths is the data that it has on its customers. This is how it builds its algorithms. Um, and this is a huge benefit for customers because it can help customers find what they need. And it's also a huge benefit for sellers because part of the, because part of what Amazon does for a seller is it um, allows uh, it allows this, it, it targets the seller's product to the subset of customers that might want it. So instead of being in a, um, instead of being in a retail store and everyone has to just walk in the front door, walk down up and down all the, sh all, all of the aisles, see what's on each of the shelves. 
um, on Amazon, there the algorithm and the platform is working to bring together the small group of people who want whatever X product is and those who are making it. Um, and Amazon knows that it will make as the most money as a platform if it can keep customers happy in the sense that if it can get customers the products they want and they can get customers products which will not be returned, right? This is the huge thing. We all, I think we all have probably ordered things off of Amazon and we all know that we, if we don't like it, we can just take it back to the local Amazon Fresh store to, I mean, depending on where you are, you can take it back to a Whole Foods, you can take it to a Kohl's and just return it. It's the simplest, easiest thing, but Amazon's, um, Amazon's business model is founded on making sure that customers don't actually have to do that regularly. So it promotes, um, it promotes the brands and the uh, products that don't get returned. And so for those small business people who really do it right and who really make a good product and really pay attention to the customer service side of things, make sure that their ratings stay high, their returns stay low. They have a huge leg up um, in terms of, again, breaking into these competitive spaces in which you have these big, massive name brands that everybody would know. Wow. So is it likely that we're going to see some kind of uh, antitrust action go through? I know, look, I know all those folks working in Washington, D.C., in those regulatory agencies. They've got to justify their existence somehow. Are, are they, are they going to push something through on this? Yeah, so the FTC's case against Amazon, um, I have gone through and I have read the full 140-page uh, complaint. Um, I personally don't think it holds water. It's technically sort of like a, a, a it's charging Amazon has two monopolies. I think that it the, the, I think that the case really misdefines and misunderstands what the relevant markets that Amazon is uh, operating in. It kind of, kind of tries to say that Amazon is a unique thing and therefore a monopoly, um, which is, or not quite unique, but is one of the very few, few, uh, few entities doing what it's doing is therefore a monopoly. And I just don't think that holds water. So I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the FTC's case go down the flames in court. <laughs> I'm guessing you're not going to be called up for the jury, David, but that's okay. I, I agree though with you. I, I, I don't want to see you know, I don't want to see companies taking advantage, but at the same time, I don't want to see trouble where there's something. Don't fix something that's that's actually working. And it sounds like this is working well. Yeah, um, and and like I said, I I think that people mistake the fact that big tech companies make mis uh, big companies big tech companies have missteps for some um, overall sweeping indictment of them as entities. Um, all large businesses make mistakes. It's a fact, it, it is difficult to run large companies. Also, people are fallible and it's just unavoidable at a certain point. Again, we're talking with David McGarry. He is a Young Voices contributor. David, where can people find you and follow you on social media? So I would suggest that everybody goes to protectingtaxpayers.org and you'll find a lot of my work there. And you can also follow me on X, which I will persist in calling Twitter at David B. McGarry. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're very happy to welcome a new contributor to the show. Her name is Andrea Hitt, and she's not only a Young Voices contributor, but she's also a communications manager at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin. And uh, Andrea, wonderful to have you on the show. Take a moment and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so I work for the Texas Public Policy Foundation as um, a communications manager. So I run our communication strategy um, and Twitter for Life Powered, which is our energy policy initiative, as well as right on healthcare. So I've been doing that for about 
uh, five months and I recently escaped the swamp in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. I, I was reading your article in the uh, Star-Telegram about uh, what Texas, when Texas needed power for winter, guess what delivered? And you said, hint, it wasn't solar or wind. And I'm thinking back to it. Was, it's been a couple of years now since the big freeze uh, where Texas really had, had a very serious and deadly situation with a winter storm. Talk to me about green energy and what Texas learned from, was it in 2021 when they had that great freeze? Yes, in February 2021. So we are approaching the three-year anniversary of uh, winter storm Yuri. Um, and so tragically what happened was two, over 200 people died. Uh, the Texas grid collapsed. And one of the reasons for that was the wind turbines and solar panels completely iced over. Uh, we got kind of lucky this past freeze in January where the temperatures were about 10 degrees warmer. So we didn't have, and there wasn't a lot of uh, snow or ice. So we didn't have the same weather problems that we had during Yuri. Uh, but unfortunately, the sun doesn't sh always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. And so there were times um, this past winter where the solar was operating at zero, wind was at, you know, virtually nothing. As well, at the most, it was like 12% at peak demand times. And so unfortunately, solar and wind just collapse when we need them most. Um, and so we're trying to build up our grid reliability, unfortunately, in Texas, most of the investment has been in renewables, specifically wind and solar. They're heavily subsidized by the Biden administration right now, but they just don't deliver. So, Andrea, and what, what did deliver? And we're talking in the more recent winter. Obviously, they learned from the great uh, freeze of 2021. Um, what, what has Texas learned from this? Well, hopefully they're learning that when it comes to reliable, affordable, dispatchable energy, you know, what can be turned on with the flick of a switch. It is a little bit, we have a little bit of nuclear, but it is primarily coal and natural gas. They're, you know, the fossil fuels, which, you know, John Kerry's big enemy right now are coal right. plants. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, Texans shouldn't be worried about keeping the power on. They should know that if it's 15 degrees or in the summer, if it's 115 degrees, um, we had some problems in September uh, with the grid as well, um, they should know that when they go to turn their heat on or they go to turn their AC on, it's going to work. The power grid is going to sustain itself. And the grid is only as strong as its weakest link. We gauge grid reliability by how well it can perform under these strenuous conditions when demand is high and temperatures are extremely hot or cold. Wind and solar are not, you know, we aren't saying get rid of them. But we are saying that they work on nice, sunny, 65, 70 degree days with a little bit of wind um, in an app, like a nice sunny afternoon when demand is low. But when it comes to it's extremely hot or extremely cold, demand is high, they cannot consistently deliver. It is only coal and natural gas that can be turned on. They're quick, they're reliable, and we know that they're always going to be there. So, Andrea, why do we find so many people in positions of power tend to have kind of an either-or mentality when it comes to energy? You can either have clean, green energy, or, you know, you can have that polluting coal and oil and whatnot. It sounds like there's a, there's a very clear need for both for those times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Absolutely. 
Um, yeah. So again, you know, wind and solar, they work great. Um, a lot of advocates down here love to point out that a couple days ago, it was, you know, nice weather. Wind and solar were making up most of the grid. But again, it comes down to when we really need it. Wind and solar are unfortunately nowhere to be found. And for the advocates that are pushing wind and solar power only, um, what they fail to mention is that a lot of these parts are made with fossil fuels. So there's no way that we could truly get rid of them. And you know, even if we were to hypothetically, which we shouldn't, end coal and natural gas production in the United States, we would merely be shipping them over to China and other countries like that, which have horrible environmental regulations, as well as the parts are made with um, human late, like slave labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, and that's not something we want. That's not environment. That's not actually environmentally friendly. That's not actually clean energy at all. So I have to ask you this, and it's kind of a subjective question, but um, if these renewable energies weren't being subsidized by by the federal government, it seems like the the return on investment would would make it a you know it, it would be a no brainer. Basically, uh, they wouldn't be pouring billions of dollars into companies wouldn't do this and, and municipalities and so forth if they knew that uh, it wasn't really going to be a great investment. And, and I'm, I guess I'm curious: do, is is it only that that subsidization process that uh, that allows these green energy sources to to operate at a loss? Well, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, you know, Texas has invested a lot. We've invested over $100 billion into wow. building new wind and solar, but that hasn't solved the grid reliability problems that we're having. Clearly, we had this conversation last month. We've been having it for years. Um, so unfortunately, it's just it is a big financial incentive. Um, I think another part of that equation is uh, climate activists and ESG proponents. We have had under ESG pressure, um, SWEPCO, which is um, the Southwest, um, they basically run like gas. Um, sorry, they are the sorry, I can only remember the acronym. Um, but they basically shut down the um, Perky power plant, which provided a massive amount of generation to East Texas. And they're trying to shut that down 12 years early. So they're caving to these ESG proponents. They're caving to these right federal regulations. And that is not going to work. And at the end of the day, it's just going to cut back on our reliable, dispatchable generation. Is nuclear even... Is is it on the table? I mean, you mentioned it, but it sounds like it, it's kind of an afterthought, not really uh, something that's front and center. Unfortunately, with nu- nuclear would be great if we could, you know, have better permitting processes. You know, unfortunately, nuclear people are scared of it mm-hmm. and they shouldn't be. And we need to be building more of it. It is clean, dispatchable energy. Uh, if we want to look towards a clean energy future, that should absolutely include nuclear but the permitting process for that and federal regulations for it are so stringent. That permitting process is so long. And people, I think they hear nuclear, they think Chernobyl, mm-hmm. and they get a little scared. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a shame, too. And and I'll tell you, it's, it's through my conversations with Young Voices contributors that uh, I haven't been anti-nuclear, but I've been less than supportive, thinking there's got to be less complicated ways. I'm becoming a believer that especially with the small modular reactors that, that are being developed, I think that uh, that's the way we ought to be looking. But 
I don't know that the environmental lobby is is interested in going that way. Unfortunately not. We wish they were, but, um, you know, we firmly believe in, you know, a, all of the above energy policy, but that does have to include fossil fuels. Okay. I love the common sense approach that you're taking here, Andrea. Again, we're talking with Andrea Hitt. She is a contributor to Young Voices as well as a communications manager at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin. And Andrea, where can people find you on social media? Yep. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at a underscore hit underscore. Um, not a big tweeter, um, but I do love what Elon's done with the platform. So. Okay. Very good. Wonderful to make your acquaintance. I hope we get to talk again soon. Maybe we'll be talking about uh, what to do about the heat wave and keep people cool <laughs> yes, in the that summer. Is, that is definitely a concern that we'll be facing in about six months. All right, Andrea, thank you so much. Let's talk again soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome another new contributor to the show. I want to welcome Gabriel Benitez. Gabe, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, I know you're a Young Voices contributor, and there's there's more that our audience would like to know about you. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am an assistant director of Foundation and Corporate Relations at the University of Chicago, I serve as my team's chief research officer, as well as a fundraising partner to our faculty in the Booth School of Business and the UChicago Law School. Fantastic. I'm looking at an article of yours in the Chicago Tribune about uh, taxing and banning nicotine products in Chicagoland is not working. And I look, I know this is, this is kind of a common thing in a lot of places, but set the stage for me. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the efforts to, to ban and tax uh, nicotine products. Whose idea was it and, and uh, how are they going about it? Yeah, well, taxing and banning nicotine and tobacco products, uh, you know, goes practically all the way back to the days after Prohibition um, for starting out in the 40s. And since then, they've sort of levied all sorts of these other taxes, starting with the state of Illinois, then Cook County, then the city of Chicago. And every time, you know, it's been, of course, a hike uh, a raise in those taxes. Chicagoland, and for those of, that are not aware, that's the nickname for the Chicago metro area, has a pretty convoluted tax scheme for cigarettes. Right now, there's a nearly $3 Illinois state tax combined with a $3 Cook County tax. And that, of course, encompasses Chicago as well as other cities like Evanston and Cicero. Uh, and then finally, Chicago itself has a $1.18 city tax. So a pack of cigarettes bought within the city limits of Chicago comes out to be a little more than $7 a pack, which is the highest cigarette tax burden in the nation, followed closely by other cities in Cook County. Uh, the taxes on a pack of cigarettes bought anywhere in the county will come out to be about $6 at the very least. So it might not be surprising to learn that cities in Cook County represent four of the top five highest cigarette tax burdens in the nation. So I guess hardly anybody smokes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I, no, I, I, I say that jokingly, but that's, that's expensive. I'm sorry, I'm going to date oh, myself yes. when I say this, but I remember when, you know, the, a pack of cigarettes was less than a dollar and, you know, the, that included all the appropriate taxes. So I, I'm curious, are, by what metric are they measuring? Well, is this having the impact that we want? 
Well, you know, I think public health experts, uh, you know, that work closely with Chicago policymakers always point to, you know, studies that suggest that, uh, you know, a, that, that raising taxes on cigarettes do often lead to a reduction in smoking, but they don't tell you that those reductions are usually marginal at best. You might see maybe a 5% reduction in smoking. Uh, and that, of course, is not also including a myriad of other negative uh, side effects, consequences uh, that come as a result of these higher taxes. So, you know, in terms of having less people smoking or, you know, uh, targeting certain populations that they want to discourage from smoking, including, for example, the young, uh, you know, perhaps marginally you're making improvements, but you're also creating all these other negative externalities that in the end just make the situation worse. I'm still trying to get my mind around 20 bucks almost for a pack of cigarettes. That's, yeah. <laughs> that is, talk about an expensive habit, but I'm, I'm guessing human beings being resourceful and prohibition being what prohibition is, people are finding ways to get around that. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, you know, Chicago was arguably ground zero for the failures of prohibition with the legacy of Al Capone and Canadian bootleggers and all that. And yet local policymakers seem to be on course to make exactly the same mistakes that their predecessors made a century ago. Um, uh, you know, and that's through a, a number of different policies. But I think especially through that three dollar Cook County tax, which drives the tax burdens way up. And the failures of the Cook County cigarette tax are, are in my view, threefold. Uh, first, there's the like the traditional libertarian talking point that taxing and banning products that people want usually just results in moving those markets underground, right? In yep. other words, creating black markets, and that's from you know anything from selling loose cigarettes or or squares as we call them here in Chicago on the sidewalk, on the park, on the train, whatever, uh, all the way up to professional cigarette sm smuggling enterprises, uh, some of which are controlled by the the drug cartels. Uh, second, the development of said black markets lead to a decrease in legitimate sales for small businesses, retailers, and the like uh, that, in fact, make decent money off of selling cigarettes. And that, of course, leads to a reduction in tax revenue for the local and state governments. That is money the government would have had if retailers had actually made those legitimate sales. And then third and most importantly, these taxes are regressive insofar that they target people at the lowest levels of income and education, as well as certain minority populations. Obviously, you know, uh, people who are struggling are more likely to be smokers and quitting is no cakewalk. So, you know, making their dependency more expensive seems like a pretty irresponsible way to pursue uh, tobacco harm reduction. I guess the, the lesson is that, you know, despite all of these draconian measures that they put in place to just reduce the the supply of cigarettes people are making their way around them and it's having all of these as i said these negative consequences as a result and and gabe we have to point out here because there are those who will immediately say well so then you're saying the cigarettes are good for kids or whatever you're not trying to make that case at all in fact i, I know in your article you say very clearly look smoking is it's it's not healthy and and we we should be working to discourage people from smoking but this is the wrong way to go about it Yes, exactly. And yeah, we shouldn't encourage smoke. It's a nasty habit. It's a waste of money. It's significant health risk, especially as you get older. And, you know, I say that as someone who has smoked on and off for years, so I understand that, you know, how much of a struggle this can be for some people. But, you know, if you really want to, to get people off an addictive product, we really need to be smart about how we do that, especially when we have such clear examples like prohibition and the ongoing drug war to suggest exactly how not to do that. There's a whole host of proven harm reduction strategies, including education, counseling, support groups, cessation products that are consistently found across the board to be effective tools for reducing smoking. And yet Chicagoland policymakers have been so hostile to anything outside of taxing and banning tobacco. 
and of course, you know, that just results in doing exactly what the government intended. But, you know, what else is new? Right. I, I love how you liken it to your home state of California. They never met a tax or a ban that they didn't like. And yet, <laughs> you know, if, if we could just put on some glasses or otherwise, uh, you know, see clearly what's going on, there's a lot of short-sightedness to these kinds of policies. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, California and Illinois and, and New York all had these really, uh, you know, uh, the, these these punitive tax schemes for cigarettes. And yet you don't see significant reductions in the number of smokers in any of those states. And indeed, in both California and in, in Illinois, I'm sure it's the same for New York, you just end up creating these 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 new illicit uh, markets that that, you know, either individuals take advantage of all the way up to organized crime and, you know, that that just makes, in my view, the problem worse on a number of fronts outside of like the actual problem of smoking itself. And it also seems like it would contribute to the continued growth of the regulatory state, which, in spite of its best intentions, also can be quite expensive and uh, sometimes not not just a little oppressive. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the, the regulatory scheme that that Chicagoland policymakers have introduced here just, uh, you know, seems to be, uh, you know, uh, what's the definition of insanity, right? You know, doing the same yep. thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So we saw how, how, how badly it went with alcohol 100 years ago. Now we're trying with cigarettes and we're seeing exactly the same problems. So what's a better way forward? I mean, I, can we look around the nation at, at other places that, uh, that are addressing the dangers of nicotine, or tobacco products, and, and actually seeing success in, in lowering the number of people using them without having to lean on, you know, punitive measures to do so? Yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag across the board. But, you know, it seems consistent that the way to not go about doing it is is just taxing and banning stuff. You need a more holistic harm reduction strategy because, of course, this is not just, you know, public health. This is behavioral economics. This is sociology. You know, this is a combination of all these different disciplines that have different recommendations and strategies. We can't lean on, you know, one uh, uh, collection of, of data to say, you know, across the board, this is a cookie cutter solution that will work everywhere. Evidently, it certainly doesn't work in Chicago by virtue of its geography, seemingly, when it's got Indiana next door and people can take a 30-minute car ride down Lakeshore Drive to get cigarettes at half the price. And, you know, borders Missouri, which has the lowest cigarette prices in the country. So going about it really just needs a more sort of informed, disciplined, diverse approach as opposed to these, you know, these these tax and bans, which are just failing. Well, and as you point out in your article, too, you know, when when you make something scarce artificially because of the high prices, um, you know, someone is going to, to rise in to fill that need illicitly, if possible. This also increases the likelihood of, uh, you know, some not so great interactions with law enforcement, uh, you know, trying to, to enforce it. Exactly. I mean, we shouldn't, um, you know, forget, uh, you know, Eric Gardner in New York, you know, what what motivated that that encounter with the police that resulted in his death? It was him selling loose cigarettes on the street. I mean, that's just one example, but that happens all over the country. Are we really trying to 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 just, you know, uh, increase that the likelihood of a, of a negative encounter like that? I mean, cigarettes are are, uh, you know, uh, a, a a product that that will seemingly endure whatever sort of, you know, negative draconian policies that, that the local government or this or the state or the federal government puts into place. 
So, you know, it, it seems sort of self-defeating to try and go about it the way that the city is doing it now. Again, we are talking with Gabe Benitez. He is a fundraising professional at the University of Chicago, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Gabe, where can people find you and follow you on social media? Sure, people can follow me on my Instagram. That's honestgabe8, all lowercase, no underscore, and that's the number eight, or else they can find me on LinkedIn. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. I want to welcome Sam Rouse. He's a Young Voices contributor studying public relations and political science at University of Miami. And Sam, I'm really hoping I got your last name correct. Was I even close? (laughs) Even in the ballpark? It's Rouse. (laughs) Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a senior at the University of Miami. I'm originally from outside of Philadelphia, I'm studying both political science and public relations, and have really tried to intertwine the two, um, getting involved in the policy space and the media relations space at the same time, um, particularly following a lot of foreign policy, tech issues, energy issues, and these you know these different topics of defense and policy that kind of intertwine between those topics. Boy, we've had some big foreign policy uh, events here lately as far as uh, um, I know the, the Senate was considering a Ukraine and not just Ukraine, but Taiwan and um, I want to say in Israel uh, foreign aid yeah. package. And, and I mean, people were saying this is the most important vote that, uh, that you'll take as a Senator. This will define the Senate for the next 100 years or, or whatever. Talk to me about, uh, about Ukraine aid for Ukraine. And in particular, uh, JD Vance has apparently been making some waves that, uh, um, have, have caught some people's attention. What's the story there? Yeah, absolutely. So the Senate just passed this bill that will couple aid between Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, um, obviously the three biggest prongs of U.S. defense aid at the moment um, to these different countries that are some of our closest allies and some of our most important strategic allies. Um, And the bill passed resoundingly with, I believe it was 27 Republicans voting and the entire Democratic caucus voting for it. Um, But Senator Vance um, and some of these uh, new generation of Republicans joined by him with Josh Hawley, Mike Lee, and some of the others have really been making their rounds of lobbying, not just against aid to Ukraine and and support for the Ukraine war, but really against the concept of us being able to provide aid in the form of military arms or monetary um, support to these other countries, Um, even though it's been, and it's really been quite clear that the aid has been super transparent, super tracked. Um, the Ukraine Oversight Interagency Working Group is supported by a ton of organizations in the federal government, um, as well as outside groups from international organizations and other international other countries oversight groups. Um, so this aid has been really well documented and tracked um, and is actually quite a small financial consideration for the United States compared to entitlement programs. Um, but they've been trying to highlight it as the menace of U.S. Um, spending money to other countries and not being spent on our homeland. So talk to me about uh, the the isolationist group there in, in Congress. I, I know isolationist kind of has, has a, a tough ring to it, but uh, non-interventionist, does it mean the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the distinctions that's 
I, I always hesitate to make is, is, is labeling people's political decisions too quickly. And I made it very clear in my recent piece about Senator Vance that this, I didn't want to go out and just start mudslinging him as an isolationist, as a non-interventionist, um, or even, you know, there's a lot of people attacking these different politicians as Putin sympathizers, and they just don't support America. Um, that's not really what I think we should focus on, because that doesn't help advance the cause for Ukraine aid any better. I think that the cause needs to be focused on the facts of, you know, is the aid being done transparently? Is it reasonable? Um, is it actually meaningful and impactful? Because, you know, you could throw billions of dollars at anything, you know, just like the DeSantis campaign bought millions of ad buys. It didn't translate into votes. Well, that could be the same case in foreign aid. Um, but it's been pretty clear that the armaments that we provided to Ukraine have significantly weakened the Russian military, um, which is one of our greatest rivals in the international sphere. Um, but I do, I, I really hesitate to use that isolationist label because I think all of us inherently would like there to be less war. I don't think anyone is particularly, well, I'm sure there are, but you know, most people are generally anti-war. Most people would like us to not send our troops abroad. And nobody has been advocating for sending U.S. troops to Israel, to Ukraine, to Taiwan. Um, but that's where this uh, these debates kind of escalate to, to unreasonableness instead of focusing on the issues. So I, I'd love to get your take on exactly how involved should the U.S. be? Um, I know that uh, typically we've, we've been seen as a well-intentioned country and we try to use our influence for good. However, and I'm saying this as, as a conservative flag waving American, there's times where I wonder how that, you know, where we're sending troops or where we're building bases has anything to do with protecting our freedoms here at home. In fact, sometimes it seems like the more bases we, we build abroad, the more soldiers we send abroad, the less free we are here at home. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really what it comes down to is a national security dilemma of there's only so much that they can tell us because we could be really well positioned abroad and actually have a lot more bases than we know about um, and, and taking a lot more, um, you know, success than we are, but that can't always be revealed to the public. Um, and that's really a, a tricky line for the government to walk in terms of transparency. Um, and the issue of particularly a Ukraine, I, I believe firmly that as one of our most important democratic allies in East, the Eastern European and Middle East region, um, especially with its border shared with Russia, that is a pretty strategic, important defense um, dating back um, to you know the traditional lines of the Cold War and the amount of aid that we provided to Eastern Europe was essential in keeping them um, at bay from influencing further into Europe and, and some of our more um, top-line allies, you know, of, of Britain and France and beyond. But I think that it's important consideration that absolutely nobody has been seeking to send U.S. troops abroad in Ukraine. Um, we have not even been, you know, we're not giving them blank checks. We are giving them direct military arms. And that the most important thing that, get, that doesn't get touched as much in the mainstream media about this issue is the money that we are spending to ship our arms to them allows us then to replenish our armaments and give us new weapons, which actually does make us stronger here at home because it is continuing to stimulate this industry that generates billions and billions of tax dollars that then can be spent on, on, on social issues domestically. Um, so I think that's an important thing to weigh, but I think it's 
needs to be transparent and there needs to be more breakdown given to the American people in order to get them on that side. And I think that's the biggest thing my generation has seen is that, you know, when these wars develop, dating back to when we were children in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, that there is not transparency about what the strategy is and how it's going to benefit us, how it's going to benefit our allies. Um, there's too much of a focus put on rushing to get things done. Um, and that's important because we have to act strategically, but it also needs to be done in a way that is messaged well. And as a public relations person, that's very important. It's very hard, too, to know what to believe. And, and I say that from the standpoint of I don't of have a dog in the fight uh, as far as Ukraine and Russia. But the the information that that I've seen coming out, uh, whether it's been, you know, favoring the Ukrainian side or favoring the Russian side, I don't know who to trust. And, and, and so, you know, I have questions as far as, well, it's been going on now for a couple of years. Is, is, this, is this putting uh, good money after a cause that, that is largely decided? Um, and, and I don't know because I really don't know which, which information sources to trust. Some people make more sense than others, but um, it seems like anything that comes through official channels seems pretty worked over by the time it gets to us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that you are highlighting one of the bigger issues that I see coming up more and more today is there's a level of fatigue at this point that this has been ongoing for time and time. And that happens with any policy issue. Uh, over time, there just is a wear and tear of people no longer having interest in actively following things. You know, at the beginning onslaught, when this all began, we were all reading the daily advances of what was happening directly in the streets of Kiev and other cities. Right. Um, at this point, we are no longer doing that. We are we're distracted by immigration bills and the election. And yeah, I, I think that it's important to get a diverse source of media. Um, and there's been some really interesting new media, as we've seen with the Tucker Carlson interview about this conflict. Um, but it's, it's important to weigh all those things and, and try to look into the numbers. I've tried to read through some of the, the data from the actual bills um, to know where the money is going, where it's not going. And that's that's not something the ordinary citizen wants to do. And again, in your piece in realcleardefense.com, um, you're, you're not trying to so much sling mud or call somebody out politically as you're, you're encouraging uh, J.D. Vance, among others, to, to make sure they're being accurate in, in how they portray you know, their, their opposition. In other words, basically you're, you're, you're telling them, look, don't just say something, you know, make sure you say something that can be backed up with the facts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going into a presidential election year, that could not be more important. We want voters to be informed on the issues and we want our, you know, our elected officials to tell us the truth and whether or not that's an easy truth or a hard truth. We need them to tell us the truth. We, des um, we deserve the truth. Again, we're talking with Sam Rouse, He's a Young Voices contributor. Sam, where can people find you on social media? Absolutely. They can find me at Twitter at SamRouse1. Now, my account was just reactivated today, finally. Um, and they can also find me on LinkedIn.